a 64-year-old female with a cough and bronchitis, but her blood pressure on discharge is 250 over 130. What medication do you reach for in your arsenal? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Michael J. Bressler. Dr. Bressler is a clinical professor at Stanford University, and he's also director of the Department of Emergency Medicine at the Mills Peninsula Health System. Dr. Bressler has been active in both state and federal healthcare legislation for some time, including raising money for indigent patients by getting a surcharge on vehicular fines. So he knows all about the healthcare system and a lot about hypertension. Today we're discussing hypertensive urgency and hypertensive emergency and the medications for treating it. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Bressler. Thank you. Appreciate you asking me. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career and how did you get so deeply emerged in the cardiac aspects of ED medicine? Well, both my hospitals are major cardiac centers, obviously Stanford, the academic center, and also my private affiliation at Mills Peninsula is also a major cardiac center. And we have a lot of folks in the area with hypertension and cardiovascular disease, as do many of us throughout the United States. And for some reason, I just started becoming interested in that and have done work in that area. And as time has gone on, of course, gotten more deeply involved. What percent of patients presenting to an emergency room have hypertension, diagnosed or undiagnosed? It's pretty high, isn't it? It really is. It's, it's surprisingly high. There's one study of almost 1,000 patients that showed that 45% in that study had pressures greater than 140 over 90 in the emergency department, and a third of those had no prior history. Two-thirds, of course, had a history but were inadequately managed. So let's talk about some of the cases that may need more aggressive intervention. So remind us first, what's the difference between hypertensive urgency and hypertensive emergency? By definition, a hypertensive emergency implies that there is acute end organ damage because of the acutely elevated blood pressure. Now, over time, obviously, we can get end organ damage, but what we're talking about is the acute situation so that a hypertensive emergency by definition, means that we have signs of acute end organ damage because of the acutely elevated blood pressure. That might be hepatic encephalopathy. It might be aortic dissection, whatever. Uh, wouldn't be chronic renal failure because that's chronic? Not chronic, but acute renal failure might well be. Hypertensive urgency, again, these are perhaps artificial definitions, but they're useful ones. Hypertensive urgency means the blood pressure is elevated enough so that you as a doctor get concerned you know, but the patient's sitting there reading the newspaper. That is, no acute symptoms because of it. So it's not the numbers that really matter so much. It's the acute effect. Generally, a hypertensive emergency will have systolics well into the 200s and diastolics like 130 or above. But again, it's not the numbers. It's whether or not there's acute end organ damage. So there's a whole host of intravenous medications for lowering the blood pressure. Before we even talk about them, what do you want us to remember about physiology before we begin treating the patient? Well, basically, over time, of course, we get stiffening of the arterial walls because of all the risk factors that we know about. We increase our peripheral vascular resistance. We have a chronic inflammatory process that leads to muscular hypertrophy in the walls of the blood vessels and something called endothelial dysfunction, which leads to inflammation, depletion of nitric oxide, which is a dilating agent, and capillary permeability. But in the acute situation, the problem is that the blood pressure has risen so high, so acutely, that the vital organs cannot cope with it. Now, over time, with chronic hypertension, 
as the systemic blood pressure rises, that pressure is damped down in the vital organs so that they maintain a pretty good normalized blood pressure. In an acute hypertensive crisis, what happens is that auto-regulation breaks down and the elevated, tremendously elevated systemic pressure is now transmitted to the brain, the kidneys, the heart, whatever. And so we get end organ damage in those organs on an acute basis. So most of us are are very familiar and comfortable with instituting nipride as a parental vasodilator, but what's some of the downsides that we tend to forget about because we've used it for so many years, or when should it not be used? Well, we all grew up with nitroprusside. It's a great drug. It acts very quickly. You know, we've all in the emergency department kind of learned how to use it, but there are better agents now. Some of the problems with it are, first of all, it's unstable to UV light, and you have to wrap it in foil you can very easily overshoot. So it's not uncommon to drop that pressure too rapidly, which can really create problems. It's metabolized to cyanide, and that's not good. Now, that takes a while. We don't see those effects in the emergency department. But over time, especially if somebody's maintained for a day or two on nitroprusside, we can get cyanide poisoning, and it does cross the placenta. So it's potentially toxic to the fetus if that happens. If it extravasates, if it leaks out of the IV, you can get significant tissue necrosis. And theoretically, at least, it actually increases intracranial pressure. So nitroprusside is a great drug if you really need it fast, but there are other drugs on the market that are available to us that really are potentially better in some situations. So now that you've led us into that, what are those drugs? What do we need to know? Well, one of them is phenoldepam. It's not used too much in the United States, though it is in, in Europe a lot. It's an alternative, and we're talking about IV drugs now for hypertensive crisis, hypertensive emergencies. Phenoldepam is available to us. It's a peripheral dopamine A1 receptor agonist, that is a vasodilatory agent. It's got a rapid onset of action, rapid offset. Theoretically, at least, its main advantage is that it improves renal function, and there's less chance of overshoot. So that's one agent. Some of the calcium blockers are also very good. Nicardipine is something that's been used quite a bit recently. And nicardipine IV, advantages are that, of course, it's not metabolized to cyanide. It's not light-sensitive. There's less chance of overshooting. In fact, many people will use it without an arterial line. And it's a much easier drug to use. There is a newer, a second parenteral calcium blocker that's available now, and that is clavidipine. I have no experience with it. It's, I believe it's just become available. The theoretical advantage of that is that it's got a shorter half-life than nicardipine, and so that if you do overshoot or don't need it, you could turn it off more. But as I say, I don't have any direct experience with it. There are other drugs as well. The IV beta blockers, of course, can be used. Uh, metoprolol, esmolol, which is very short-acting, labetalol, which has both alpha and beta-blocking characteristics. For those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Bressler from Stanford University. We're discussing hypertensive urgency and hypertensive emergencies and the medications you'll be using to treat them. Now, you mentioned nicardipine. Is that the same class as nifedipine? Yes, they are both calcium channel blockers. But it's IV form and safe? That's correct. I think what you're alluding to is for a while we used to use nifedipine orally. We would punch holes in the capsule and have people chew it or just tear it. We know that's not a good idea. The short-acting calcium blockers actually are not necessarily safe, and really only the long-acting oral preparations should be used. But IV calcium blockers are an entirely different situation. So suppose you see hypertension with an acute coronary syndrome. What's your approach, Dr. Bressler? 
just jack up the nitrites? Well, for that, yes. Nitroglycerin is really the best drug. Now, that's more of a veno dilator than arterial dilator, as opposed to nitroprusside, which is more of an arterial than veno dilator. But in an acute coronary syndrome, whether it's an ischemic situation or acute pulmonary edema, generally the nitroglycerin is our best drug to use. And if the pressure is elevated, let's say in acute pulmonary edema or an acute MI, it's usually a secondary effect of the acute dyspnea or acute pain. So that relieving the pain, relieving the hypoxia is usually the best way to get the pressure down, and nitroglycerin will help in that regard for both conditions. Generally, if the pressure stays high, it's because we haven't used enough IV nitroglycerin. And if you've used a ton of IV nitroglycerin and it's still not working, then could you have a hypertensive crisis that's causing the acute coronary syndrome? Yes, that's a very good point. If, if you really maxed out on your nitroglycerin, it may well be that the acute crisis is due to, that the acute coronary event is due to the acute elevated blood pressure. And in that situation, nitroprusside is a good drug to use. Let's talk again about ACE inhibitors. Some say they should just be in the drinking water. In the ER, we love Vasotec, but are there times you wouldn't use them? Well, the problem with ACE inhibitors, they're excellent drugs, but if we're talking about parenterally, enalapril, enalapril at uh, IV, many people use that in congestive heart failure. It's not necessarily the greatest drug for an acute hypertensive emergency, but as outpatient treatment, the ACE inhibitors are one of the major drugs that we use. And the way they work is, if you recall, they're is the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system is very much involved in elevated blood pressure. So we have circulating angiotensinogen, which is converted to angiotensin-1 with the help of renin from the kidneys. Angiotensin-1 is converted to angiotensin-2 by the aptly named angiotensin-converting enzyme. So an ACE inhibitor then obviously inhibits that conversion to angiotensin-2. Now, why is that important? Angiotensin-2 is a very powerful vasoconstrictor. And it has a number of other effects as well, such as inflammation in the walls of the blood vessels. One of the other effects of angiotensin II is that it stimulates aldosterone, which helps us hold on to sodium and water from the kidneys, which elevates blood pressure further. So we want to minimize the effect, the production of, or the action of angiotensin II. The ACE inhibitors decrease the conversion of angiotensin I to angiotensin II. So the ACE inhibitors for oral treatment of hypertension are a major class of useful drugs that we have. Stroke management has changed drastically over the years. How do you address hypertension with stroke, be it hemorrhagic or ischemic? Or do you have any examples from your experiences of how it shouldn't be addressed? Definitely. I was taught when a patient comes in with elevated blood pressure from stroke, especially hemorrhagic stroke, we really want to get that pressure down pretty quickly. And we know now that is absolutely the worst thing we can do. The current theory is that in stroke, the blood pressure, particularly in ischemic stroke, the 85 or 90% of strokes that are due to embolus or thrombus rather than bleeding, in fact, that elevated blood pressure is a secondary response to help perfuse the areas of brain that have compromised circulation. And so the worst thing we can do is to drop the blood pressure either very rapidly or very far. Now, in hemorrhagic stroke, we often have an even higher blood pressure, and perhaps if it's very high, we may want to reduce it a bit. But what we know is that it's important to just maybe take the top 10 or 20%, 15% or so, off the top of the mean arterial pressure, stroke or hypertensive encephalopathy. We never want to reduce the diastolic to lower than 110. That is, we want to keep the patients hypertensive. Do you have any examples, maybe anonymously, where this didn't go so well? Well, in the old days, uh, sure, we used to drop the pressure and think we're helping patients, and they got worse. 
We know that if you're going to give TPA for ischemic stroke, the guidelines are that you want to get the pressure to like 185 over 110 or so. You don't want it too high. You can lower it with labetalol or similar drugs. Labetalol is a very good drug, as is nicardipine. Both of those are, are excellent drugs for any acute brain problem where we want to control blood pressure. Okay, how about novel uses of antihypertensives? Can you tell us about the 15-year-old girl in Viagra? Yeah. <laughs> there was a, there's a case report that I don't know how credible it is, but case report... India, India I think it was India, yeah. Right. She was felt to have a hypertensive crisis with both kidney and brain um, uh, failure. And they used nitroprusside, amlodipine, benzopril, prazopress, atenolol, aldimet, candesartan, enalapril, and labetalol, all of them, they said, at the same time. I can't imagine that, but there was no effect. And finally, they took out her kidneys, and she still was hypertensive. They then gave her some Viagra, sildenafil, and within 30 minutes, her pressure was controlled. Well, actually, that class of drugs does have its uses, for example, in pulmonary hypertension. And it may well be that the class of drugs that we use now for erectile dysfunction actually may have some use in other conditions as well besides pulmonary hypertension, but that's for the future. So what is your take-home point for today to the emergency room physicians or the primary care doctors who may be listening to the show, Dr. Bressler? Well, I think the important thing is, is to be aware of just how widespread elevated blood pressure is in our society because of our lifestyle, lack of exercise, dietary indiscretion, uh, obesity, whatever. A lot of our patients, including ourselves, have high blood pressure, and it's very important that we screen for that. The American College of Emergency Physicians, for example, recommends that if the patient in the emergency department has consistently elevated pressure beyond like 140 over 90, that they should be referred to their primary physician for outpatient evaluation. If the pressure really stays high, we might want to treat them from the emergency department. But the important thing is that we be aware of it, we get patients to modify their lifestyle to the extent they can, and that we get them on blood pressure medication. Again, some studies have shown that the incidence is just amazingly high, much higher than we would have ever expected it to be. So it's something we really need to be aware of and make sure they're referred to their primary physicians for further evaluation. Thank you for being our guest today, Dr. Bressler. Thank you. I enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it, too. Our thanks goes to Dr. Michael Bressler, who's been our guest from Stanford University. We've been discussing the management of hypertensive urgency and hypertensive emergencies and the wisdom to know the difference. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. Or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions. We'd love to hear from you, 888-639-6157. That's 888-639-6157. And thank you for listening.